I would invite you to take a Bible with me this morning. Turn to, again, the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the 16th chapter today. Our text begins at the 21st verse of chapter 16. If you were here last week or you weren't with us, um, we are carrying forward on the second half of a passage that Matthew extends more than Mark or Luke um, in a similar place. Jesus has asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Um, they're excited to share with him the results of the surveys. Uh, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some think you're Elijah. Um, and then Jesus asked that critical question, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter gets the right answer. You, you are Messiah. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, you are Peter, you are Petros, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Powerful. Um, today we get to the second half of that text. And so if you're able this morning, I'd invite you to stand with me as we look at verse 21 through 28 together. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stone that could make me stumble, for you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. And Jesus said to his disciples, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? For the human one is about to come with the majesty of his father and with his angels, and then he will repay each one for what this person has done. I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see the human one coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. About 160 years uh, before the time of Jesus, there was a young preacher's kid, um, a son of a priest um, by the name of Judas Maccabeus. He would rally the young Jewish men of his day. They would go up into the mountains and he would rally them together and prepare them to go and to wage war against a, an empire, the Seleucid Empire, a little empire that existed before Rome. And in particular, their leader, Antiochus IV, who had taken over Jerusalem and was trying to impose Greek, was trying to impose Hellenistic language and culture and worship on the Jewish people. Just a kind of sidelight for the scholarly types in the room. There are an awful lot of Old Testament scholars who believe the book of Daniel actually emerged during this time period. When Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, all of this new language and new culture and new ways of being were being imposed on God's people and there was a fear that they were losing their uniqueness. And so the book of Daniel emerges to remind them of their years in Babylon and ways they had to be faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. And now here they are again, and they have to be faithful again. But aided by the miraculous work of God that's still celebrated each Hanukkah, Judas Maccabeus, who has a cool nickname, the Hammer, 
He would win several victories and then sweep down into Jerusalem, purifying the temple from all the pagan worship that Antiochus had, had put in place there. He would reestablish Jewish independence, freedom in Judah. He would make a deal for independence with Rome that they eventually would not fully honor. But, but here's the thing. Judas Maccabeus died fighting for the freedom of his people. And even today, he still lives on as a hero and model of passionate faith for his people. During the boyhood of Jesus, an escaped slave of Herod the Great named Simon led a rebellion against the palace at Jericho. He got some men together, got them riled up, and he and his followers were able to get to Jericho and burn down the palace and many of the other locations of Jewish or of Roman authority before eventually the Romans had enough of it and came in and violently put down the rebellion. Just a few years after the death of Jesus, a man named Thutis would take 400 followers to the Jordan and plan another kind of rebellion. It didn't get very far off the ground before the Romans found out about it and crushed them and beheaded Thutis. According to the historian Josephus, just a few years later, an unnamed Egyptian leader would gather 30,000 rebels, a big group this time on the Mount of Olives, proclaiming that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down and they could sweep in and purify the city and the temple. They too were obliterated. Each of these and a long list of others were messianic figures for their followers. Some, like Judas Maccabeus, even lived long enough and won enough victories that their people could crown them and proclaim them as king for a time. They died, but they didn't die in vain. They fought valiantly for the cause of freedom. They stood their ground and took out as many of the enemy as they possibly could. Their stories sustained for their people the flame of liberty and became the narratives of imagination for young Jewish boys and girls longing to be free. They were for the people surrounding Jesus in the years to come. They were for their imaginations, the imaginations of Galilean fishermen and farmers and peasants, what Wolverine and John Rambo and John McClane and Indiana Jones and Jack Ryan and Jack Reacher and Batman and Sarah Connor and James Bond and Jason Bourne and Han Solo and John Wick and Dirty Harry make my day. Ellen Ripley, Brian Mills, Martin Riggs, The Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, Black Widow, Spider-Man, all the other Avengers put together. They were for them what those names are for us. They were heroes. Supernaturally blessed to be the forces for good in a world of evil. I start that way because if we don't have that mindset in our imaginations, we will do what we tend to do with this text, which is just spiritualize it. And fail to understand the implications, the radicalness, the flip of the script that this text is for the original and the continuing disciples of Jesus. You see, in the text, like Judas Maccabeus, Jesus has taken his team of leaders up into the mountains. His inner circle has committed themselves fully to his cause. Crowds, we would call them today, mobs, are also present. 
hanging on every word. He has fed them, healed them, cast out demons from them, calmed storms, and even walked on water. The spirit of the living God is visibly upon him with power. A small team of leaders is made up of young, hard, scrabble peasants whose backs and arms have been made strong from years of labor in the fields and on the seas. Those who had avoided the hard labor of empire had been tax collectors, insiders to Rome's oppressive practices. You need a few of those folks around. They know firsthand how the powers work, how they can be exploited, and now how the poor could use those same methods to finance a movement. They had cool nicknames like the Zealot, the Rock, the Sons of Thunder. They have just proclaimed that Jesus is Messiah, the king, the leader of a new and long-expected revolutionary movement. They are ready to lead the charge down the mountains into Jerusalem to purify and establish themselves in the temple. And then, like David, to use divine power to reestablish the freedom and independence of Israel. The time of revolution was at hand, and they were ready. They were not throwing away their shot. I love that line. Thanks, Ryan. I worked hard on that line. Before heading for a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, it was time for a speech from the leader. He's Messiah. Now for his nomination acceptance speech. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We are going to live on. We are going to survive. Today we celebrate our Independence Day. If you're pop culturally hip, you know that's from a bad movie. <laughs> but it's pretty much like every speech given by every other cultural hero. Now his speech, his revolutionary speech went like this. Here we go. We are headed to Jerusalem, where the king and Messiah will suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts. He will be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. And all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For all who want to save their lives will lose them. But all those who lose their lives because of me will find them. This morning, we think about the way of the cross. Matthew articulates the way of the cross twice. He wants to make sure we don't miss it. So a few weeks ago, when we were in chapter 10, we, we talked about the way of the cross. And if you, if you didn't hear it or you forgot, the way of the cross is so significant in the ministry of Jesus and the calling of the disciples. For the way of the cross is the way of love. But the way of the cross is not the way of kowtowing to the injustices in the world. It is not the way of letting evil just have its day. 
It is the willingness to stand up to all of the ways that evil has broken and continues to break the world, calling it in all of its unjustness and sinfulness and evil. But here's the trick. Doing that without becoming a reflection of the evil it is calling out. As Paul said in the text we read earlier in Romans 12, it is the commitment to not become do not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. It is the way of love. It is no wonder, Peter says. Time out. We have followed you all this way. We have seen what you can do. You are Messiah. You seem to affirm that. Let me tell you how Messiahs operate in the world, Lord. We've had a whole list of them. With relative degrees of success and failure. But they weren't nearly as cool as you. They weren't nearly as powerful as you. We're following you on the way to ask questions like, who's going to be the greatest? Who gets to sit at the right and the left? We're coming to, to bring freedom and independence, and we're coming to establish nationhood. We are coming to have our kind of kingdom. Jesus says, you shouldn't talk so much. You should follow for a while longer. For you, and this is really critical, you're not thinking so much evil thoughts. You're thinking human thoughts. And so I want to say this morning as, as we go through the rest of the sermon, if you don't like it, it's okay. We're human. I thought this morning about making the sermon kind of all sorts of human thoughts, like um, the end justifies the means or... Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, or if you can't beat them, join them. We can have all sorts of kind of human wisdom. Might makes right. I thought about going through them and talking about the ways the cross deconstructs them, contrasts them. But this morning instead, I would like to think about two stories from the life of David. I think illustrate the ways in which Jesus, as the new, the son of David, so contrasts with the one whose legacy, heroic legacy, he was living into and out of. So this morning, let's think for just a few minutes about two stories from David. One, actually both, neither of them really make children's church felt board stories. Um, I don't think VeggieTales is working on versions of either of, of, either of these stories, but but the first story is in 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter. It's the story where David has established peace. He has conquered his enemies. He has established a time of peace for Israel. And he is building a city, but he doesn't want to have a city that doesn't have the unique presence of God dwelling within it. And the symbol, the sign of God's unique presence is the Ark of the Covenant, which is down at Obed Edom's house for protection. And so David wants to get the ark from there to there. In some ways in the story, I think we're to read it this way. We know that a day is coming. In fact, Jesus says, some of you here will not die before you see this unique kingdom come in its resurrection and in its power. 
We want to have that day come when the lion and lamb will lay down together. We know where this is going. We know what the goal is. And the goal for David is to get the unique presence of God dwelling among the people in the Ark of the Covenant. And so he's got to get it from that house to Jerusalem. And so he does such a human thinking thing. He decides, wow, that's a long ways. We got to get this thing rolling, literally. And so he builds a cart. Calls up U-Haul and gets a cart. Takes it down to the house of Obedee and puts the ark on the cart. Puts some oxen in front of it and starts heading for Jerusalem. It just makes sense. It's efficient. Speedy. We can get the unique presence of God dwelling in our midst. We can get it now. Let's go. Woohoo! But do you remember what happens? It is not the way, it is not God's way for moving the ark forward. And so it causes chaos, the best laid plans, human wisdom. Best laid plans of mice and men. And poor Uzzah tries to reach out to stabilize the ark. He drops dead. I think the way we're supposed to read this is every time we sort of take control and long for speed and efficiency, it always, somebody dies. And it always turns into bloodshed and chaos. And for David, unleashing a force into the world that he now is in fear of because he knows he cannot control it. And so, if you remember, he decides, well, we'll do this God's way. So he puts the pole in the ark, and it is slow. It takes forever. And they have to go like eight paces and sacrifice something. So they go a few, few yards, and they sacrifice. And they worship and sacrifice. And then not only does it require sacrifice, but it requires David takes off almost all his clothes and dances before the ark in ways that are transparent and vulnerable and that his wife thinks are below what we should be doing as our kind of people. You see, Jesus invites us to pursue a kingdom that is coming in all of its fullness, but you cannot get there fast. And you cannot get there in human wisdom. It only comes in sacrifice. It only comes in the slowness of obedience. It only comes in vulnerability and transparency and risk. It comes slow. I've been doing a fair amount of reading uh, the last few months because there's not a lot else to do. Um, used up all Netflix and, and books now. But no, tr truthfully, I've been doing a fair amount of reading, and in part because of the, the situation and the conversation involving race. Um, I've read a couple of uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novels, The Underground Railroad and, and The Nickel Boys, both fictional but based on actual events, tragic, powerful, transformative, convicting been reading Morrison's Be the Bridge, thankful for so many of you who are participating in conversation out of that book in ways that we as, as God's people can embody the kind of justice that God requires and demands. Lately, I'm about halfway through, 
I ordered, pre-ordered John Meacham's biography of Congressman John Lewis. Book entitled His Truth is Marching On. What I love about it is Lewis, um, his, the bulk of his education actually was sem in seminary. He's a preacher who turned into a politician. Um, but what I love about Lewis is this vision that the new creation has come but he, working for civil rights, is working because he's working towards that new creation. It's powerful, beautiful. But in my reading, I came across a speech of, of Martin Luther King's that I was not familiar with. I apologize. But I got fascinated with it. Um, it's referenced in a couple of the books. It was given at a convocation uh, just a couple of months after my birth, so in my lifetime, in 1966, at Illinois Wesleyan University. And it's a powerful message. You can actually get on the website and listen to it. It's also there. You can read it. Um, the king gives this powerful speech about asking the question, how does he keep going? And is he optimistic or pessimistic? And, and basically, he says, no, I'm a prisoner of hope, as we've talked about before. But in it, he, he talks about how the scripture informs his pursuit. And he raises this question. Let me find it. He gets asked this question, what do you mean when you say love those who are oppressing you and love those who are exploiting you and those who are violently seeking to, to destroy you? And certainly when I talk about love, he says at this point, I'm not talking about emotional bosh. I'm not talking about some sentimental or even some affectionate emotion. I'm talking about something much deeper. It would be nonsense to urge oppressed people to love their violent oppressors in an affectionate sense. So he describes the words that we find in scripture, words like eros, Greek words for love, eros, phileo, friendship. But then he talks about agape. And he says, now agape is more than romantic love. Agape is more than friendship. Agape is understanding creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And when one rises to love on this level, he is able to love the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. And he is able to look those persons that he even finds it difficult to like, for he begins to look beneath the surface and he discovers that the, that individual who may be brutal toward him and who may be prejudiced was taught that way was a child of his culture. At times his school taught him that way. At times his church taught him that way. At times his family taught him that way. And the thing to do is to change the structure and the evil system so that he can grow and develop as a mature individual devoid of prejudice. And this is the kind of understanding goodwill that, a, that, non -violence that the nonviolent resistor can follow if he is true to the love ethic. And so he can rise to the point of being able to look into the face of his most violent opponent and say in substance, do to us what you will and we will still love you. And here's the line I love. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. And do to us what you will and we will still love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail, and as difficult as that is, we will still love you. 
bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators and violence into our communities at the midnight hours and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead. And we will still love you. But be assured, and this is the line, be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day, we will win our freedom, but we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. I am convinced that this is the meaning of the cross. Is it the fastest way to get there? Oh, no. Is it efficient? Does it come without risk? No. The second story is 2 Samuel chapter 11. This one definitely is not a veggie tale story. It's the story of David taking Bathsheba. If you remember the story, David sends his men off to war and decides it's time for others to take risks, not him. And he sees Bathsheba and he takes her. And then to cover it up, he has Uriah killed. And then Nathan comes to his house and says, essentially this, David, God gave you authority so that you could be a shepherd, a caretaker of people. And you have become an exploiter like all the other kings in the world. You were called to be a shepherd. God took you from the field and now is making you a king to care for people. And what I want you to hear in this, and the reason why I think that story is significant, is sometimes we read that story as a story just about sexual temptation. It is not. It is a story about David who has been given authority and then gives that up for power. And in the process then becomes a reflection of the very kinds of systems and structures that God is trying to heal the world of by raising up David to be a shepherd. And I want to be careful here because I, I made a commitment long ago that I would, not, I would not preach sermons against other ministers in the world. I would not build a ministry on the back of calling other groups heretics. And so I want to be careful, but I do think recent stories and moments where we see people who have led in the name of Christ have unbelievable falls from grace. And we look at that and we say, wow, you know, sexual temptation and greed, it can get anybody. And I want to say to that, yes, it can. <laughs> but I think we can look at many, if not most of those situations to say, this is not just sex and greed. This is about people for whom God has granted authority 
who decided to sacrifice their shepherding authority for the quest for power. And when we do that, even when we do it in God's name, we often become reflections to ourselves, but more importantly to the very people we're trying to win, we become reflections of the very character that we despise. Because we want to get there in a hurry without taking up the cross. And we want to, as Jesus, or as Paul says about Jesus, take the authority we've been given and claim that rather than kenosis that, empty that. And so, as I think about um, a year starting at the university and and what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we should always be at the bottom? Does it mean change comes from people who have no authority in the world? Please, if you hear that today, you, I misspoke and you misheard. For I think there are biblical models for us, like people like Joseph, or, or maybe more particularly, people like Daniel. And I think about a wonderful book by James Davison Hunter, To Change the World, where he argues, in order to really change the world, to, to be participants in that kingdom that is coming, we need to be committed to entering into the world in all of its various places and live into our giftedness. And so with students, trying to help them take the giftedness God has given them and build that up and enter into places of influence in the culture, places of transformation and change and voice and authority. But Hunter says this, but they have to do that with, and this is the key line, with a faithful presence. With a faithful presence. Committed to the fact that this is a long journey in the same direction and in the kingdom of God, the end does not justify the means. The end and the means are together. You cannot just get the ark to Jerusalem in a hurry. It takes sacrifice. It takes, the, it takes a commitment to love. It takes vulnerability and transparency and risk. And you cannot get to those places of authority and then want to hang on to them. Because if we do, we will become reflections of the very thing we are trying to love out of existence. But again... These are human thoughts. Jesus has his inner circle on the mountain. They're ready to take up the sword, purify Jerusalem, stand up to Roman oppression, kill for their Messiah. They're thinking human thoughts. And I want to say, this journey is hard and difficult, and there are times when we are going to fail at this. And there are going to be times like Bonhoeffer where we are so confused that we just don't know how to move forward except to do the things we don't want to do. But for we, people of faith, we constantly come back to confession. And, we, and rather than looking at those moments as moments that we valorize, those become moments of lament. Where we had failures of imagination and we failed to live into all that God wanted from us. But to think divine thoughts and not human thoughts will mean, at least in part, that when we gather together, and we're going to have to gather a lot, because these are really deeply ingrained human thoughts, that we will be reminded of who our heroes are, 
And so this morning, in closing, I just want to remind you of who your heroes are. With one exception, notable exception, that crusty group of Jesus' insiders who are potential stumbling blocks to the way of the kingdom ended up following Jesus to Jerusalem, confused, but then they were empowered by the Spirit. And though as far as we know, they never killed anyone for the kingdom. Some were crucified. One we believe upside down. They were stoned to death, pierced with swords. They were put to death in public displays like the arena. They were burnt alive. One got to to die of natural causes, but in exile from all that he loved and cared about. They are heroes because we call them saints. People who, in the really difficult challenges of life, did not just simply give in to the way things are, but they found ways to be empowered by the dignity of the Spirit and to take on the way of love in the world. Those are not human. <laughs> Those are divine ways of living. They're not the ways, the things we can do on our own. It's a life only that is offered by the Spirit. God, help us today. In some ways, we are still looking for messiahs. Mostly, we are looking for them with our human thoughts fully ingrained in us. And so we pray today that you would help us um, to take up the cross and to follow you. It is a commitment not to a quick journey, but to a long one, a long obedience in the same direction. It is a commitment to sacrifice. It is a commitment to love. It is a commitment to vulnerability and transparency. It is, it is a commitment to lament. It is a commitment to, to confession of failure. It is a commitment to, to have our minds transformed by becoming living sacrifices empowered by your spirit. God, we're, we're in a really um, challenging time where everything feels heavy and there's so many different fronts that are rightly calling for things to be made new. May we join those voices calling for all things to be made new. But may we be reflections of the cross. Teach us the way of love. We are overwhelmed by your divine capacity to heal the world through your stripes, to your amazing capacity 
participate in suffering love. Teach us how to do that. Increase our capacity and our imaginations for suffering love. May the world know uh, that we are your people because like your disciples, we do not fear death nearly as much as we fear disobedience. So help us to be empowered by your grace and your justice and your mercy and your peace and your new creation today. For we pray this in the one name of the one Messiah, the one King, the one ruler who truly can make all things new. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.